The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Father, we want to see you. All your revelation is perfect, infallible and true. But we are not. And so we need your help. Not only in seeing you as you are, but in understanding what we're seeing. So we're asking you, Father, to work that miracle in us now. To give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe what you have shown us of yourself. And to not allow what we see and hear to remain in our heads, but to change the whole of who we are. Because we know that this is eternal life, knowing you and Christ Jesus whom you have sent. So Father, would you do that work now? It's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Go ahead and return to your feet, please. We're gonna be in Luke's gospel this morning. On this Palm Sunday, we break away from our verse-by-verse exposition of Ephesians. We go to Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. That's Luke, chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. We will read all the way down to verse 44. Luke 19, 28. This is the holy, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative Word of God. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. They were saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So in his... Introduction to Knowing God. J.I. Packer quoted a sermon from Charles Spurgeon, and that's 
That's quite the handoff. Charles Spurgeon to J.I. Packer. To us. But he said this. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind and contemplation of divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. And while humbling and expanding, the subject is also eminently consolatory. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go. Plunge yourself into the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. I'm preaching to the choir on this. You are a people, we are a people who desperately want to know God more than anything else. When we go to him in prayer, we just want to know him. For him to hear us and for us to grow in communion and deep knowledge of him. When we come to his word, we're not just reading some interesting stories. We're not just learning some doctrine. We're not just filling our head with theology. We want to know God. Because we know that it's only when we know God that we have eternal life. And it's only when we know God that we will ever truly understand ourselves or the world around us. Because it is in him that we live and move and have our being. For the people that just want to know God. And because God is transcendent and outside and above and beyond his creation, we're a people who recognize it. We, we could have never reasoned our way up to God. God is not a God who needs to play hide and seek. That we could go to the, to the uttermost ends of the earth and never would we have caught a glimpse of God lest he had revealed himself. You may remember the Russian cosmonaut who had gone up into outer space and he came back and they asked him what he saw and he said, well, I didn't see God. The answer isn't that he didn't go far enough. The answer is that his eyes were blind. We're people who want to see God. We want to know God. He's revealed himself in creation. He's revealed himself in the stars. That's, as we sing, you place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. He was revealing something of himself to us, his power and his majesty and his creativity and his might and that he is the God who is deserving of all thanks and honor. But, but we know that this revelation, even the revelation within our conscience of his moral law, we know that these are just enough to leave us condemned and without excuse. And so we thank this God that he spoke, that he opened his mouth and he spoke to us so that we never again need to be the kind of people that say, I like to think of God like. I like to imagine that God is a little bit like this. 
Beloved, it was those kind of thoughts that led the Israelites to create a golden calf and say, behold, your God. The one who has led you out of slavery. We never need to say such a foolish thing any longer. We never need to wonder what God is like because he's spoken to us. He has revealed himself to us. We can come to this word and by the miracle working of his spirit, we can see him and we can know him. And we know that God has spoken. As he says in his word, he has spoken long ago and many times and in many ways to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. As Paul will say elsewhere, he is the image of the invisible God. How do you see a God who is invisible? How do you understand a God who is spirit? He has come and he has revealed himself. Not only in his word, but in the word. Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, Jesus didn't just come to destroy the works of the devil, although he did that. He didn't just come to redeem his people from slavery to sin and Satan and flesh, although he did that. Christ Jesus came to show us the Father. He came not merely to reconcile us to God, but to show us the God with whom we need reconciliation. Christ Jesus came to show us God. Not only being God himself, but the full and final revelation of God. That's why he would go on to say that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He says, I am the Father and one. One in purpose. One in power. One in nature. One in essence. Again, I say, not only reconciling us to God, but showing us the God that we once lived in enmity with. Showing us the God that we had offended. Showing us something about the nature of God. You want to know what God is like? Look at his son. You want to know what matters to God? Look at his son. And we praise God that by taking upon himself the fullness of flesh, he revealed things to us that would be otherwise completely indiscernible. Revealing things to us at a level that we can understand. That when we begin to contemplate this transcendent God, this God who is above and beyond and outside and other, we recognize that he's also imminent and close and near, having come and tabernacled with his people, having come in the flesh to reveal yet more of himself to us. And one of the ways, one of the ways in which Jesus has revealed to us more fully the Father is in his emotional life. Now, you theologically minded type people, you might be sitting there and thinking, wait a minute, God does not have emotions. You may hold to the doctrine of the impassibility of God, and I do too. The London Baptist Confession says that the Lord our God is but one living and true God, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, without parts, without passions. This is tied to God's unchanging nature. The reality that God is not moved. God is not changed. God is not enticed to do anything in his person and in his purposes, in his character and in his will, God is eternally fixed. Therefore, God doesn't suffer like man. There's nothing that we can withhold from God in his happiness or in his nature. Again, I say there's nothing that we can entice or allure God to do. That God is never acted upon. He is always the actor. 
He is never responding. He is always the one that is working out his perfect providential plan in all things. That God is never recoiling. He's never, he's never flinching. He's never pulling back in pain from anything outside of himself. And this is a good thing. It means that God is never in danger of being swept up in emotions or being led to do something he might not otherwise want to do. But we know that despite this reality, despite this truth, that we need to be on guard lest we picture some kind of God that is wooden and uncaring and stoic. Over and over again, we'll find in Scripture this language, it's very emotive terms that are used of God. Hosea 11.8, he says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. See, God is in no way controlled or constrained by emotions. He's not like us in that way. We're people who are constantly working and, and being changed by the world around us and responding to the emotions that swell up in our heart, trying to rein in our own emotions to keep us from doing things we don't want to do. But all that God does, we know it's dictated by his nature. It's driven by his purposes, all that he has ordained. So we never need to worry that God is capricious or that he's reacting or that he's ever being forced to do anything. You see, what I can tell you is this, that God never falls in love. As I've gone to great lengths to show you, God's love is bound up in his own nature. God's love is tied to his own unchanging promises. And this is a beautiful thing because otherwise it would be up, up to us to make ourselves lovely. You recognize. Look, I, I can't look to my wife and tell her, look, my love for you is just all bound up in me. It's just because of my goodness and my nature that I've cast my love upon you. No, she was lovely. Is lovely. <laughs> and she is lovable. We're not down here trying to endear ourselves to God. He doesn't fall in love. He doesn't fall out of love. But again, we've got to be on guard. This doesn't mean that God doesn't care. As a matter of fact, I submit to you as one man said that it means that God couldn't care more. Because of the infinitude of his perfections, because his love for you is not tied to you, the finite creature. It's tied to him, the infinite God. He not only cares for you, he cares for you infinity. He cares more than we could ever imagine. He cares more than we ever could. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And so as we come to Christ Jesus, the one who is not only fully God, but also fully and perfectly man. See, my emotions are stained by sin and selfishness. My emotions are not always driven by the will and the glory of God, but in Christ Jesus they were. And what we see in Christ Jesus in this full range of human emotions is the perfect response to everything that comes his way. One who is all about the Father's will, the only one who has ever lived who loved God and man perfectly, that in him we see the full range of emotions and the heights of emotions, the depths of emotions. 
Beloved, I submit to you that Christ Jesus has felt more deeply than you and I have ever felt. And they're perfect. Perfect in his emotions and perfect in his thoughts and perfect to his response to everything that came in this life. So when we come to Scripture and the prophet Isaiah tells us that he was a man of sorrows, we know that that sorrow was never driven by selfishness. It was never driven by despair. It's never driven by doubting God's goodness. If you were here on Wednesday night, we worked together through Psalm 60 and we talked about spiritual depression and we worked through some of the heroes of the faith, some of these biblical heroes, and you see how deep some of them dove. Not always sinless, of course. Some of them despairing of life itself. But then we came to Christ Jesus and we saw the sorrow of his life. So again, I submit to you that it's in him, it's in the God-man, Christ Jesus, when we get a true glimpse of the God of the Father's heart. It's in him when we find out what does God really care about? What is God really like? Now I say all that by way of introduction because it, it seems to me that one of the greatest barriers to really getting to know someone and one of, the, one of the greatest obstacles to really feeling connected to someone is when they appear to us to be emotionless. You know how difficult it is to ever really feel connected to someone that never laughs and never cries? You know how hard it is to feel like you've really gotten to know someone that always sits with a face of stone and a heart that resembles a steel trap. It's, it's when you hear the laughter of a man, when you find him brought to sorrow, that's when you find out what really matters to him. Where you come to recognize what excites him and what breaks his heart. And so for all our talk about doctrine, all our talk about theology, all our talk about these high and holy things as we come into Holy Week, a time where Christ Jesus' emotional life, his heart is laid bare, perhaps like no other. You think about all the events of this week. You think about his, his weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. And you think about his anger at the religious leaders because of the burdens that they throw upon the people and his de their desecration of his father's house. You think about the incredible distress of the Garden of Gethsemane. You think about just the immeasurable love that he shows for his disciples there in the upper room. You, you, you think about just the, the wailings of, of the cross. And my concern for us is that we get so bound up in what Jesus was doing, we miss his heart. We miss what matters to God. And my goal for us is that we would know him more. By the end of this week, we would know what God is really like in ways that we maybe hadn't otherwise. Yeah. So Luke tells us that Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. And this is, I would encourage you to pick one of the Gospels. I would, I would probably direct you to John's Gospel, but I would tell you to pick one of the Gospels and just work through this Holy Week. If you're going to start in John's Gospel, I would actually recommend you get a running start and you begin in chapter 11. 
Just read all the way through. It's half of his gospel. You remember during our time in Mark's gospel, I commented at that time that a full 40% of Mark's gospel was dedicated to Holy Week. It's how critical it is to knowing the purposes for which God has come. The purpose for which Christ would lay down his life. We, we see it most clearly in this week, of course. And so I would encourage you to read through. What you're going to find is, is that along this path to Jerusalem, there was a lot of activity. It was on this trip when he seems to run into the rich young ruler. And it's on this trip when he runs into a man called blind Bartimaeus. And it's on this trip that he runs into Zacchaeus, the wee little man. He's headed to Jerusalem. This is a trek that he's made numerous times. How do we know that Jesus' earthly ministry lasted about three years? It's because we go to John's gospel and we see all the references to the Passovers that Jesus observed, like a good Jew should. All the Passovers that Jesus observed there in Jerusalem. So scripture tells us that Jesus is coming in on the road from Jericho, coming in from the northeast, and he comes up to a town called Bethany and Bethphage. Now, we know a lot about the town of Bethany. We don't even know where Bethphage was, but it seems as though these are almost like little suburbs of each other, just, just right across the way. Here is Bethany, and there is Bethphage. And so John's gospel tells us that Jesus actually arrived in this town six days before the Passover feast. That means that this was Saturday, the eighth day of the month of Nisan. So he arrives at these towns on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. Any of you that have ever looked at it on a map in the back of your Bible, or perhaps you've made a trip there to the to the Holy Land, you know the picture of the Mount of Olives sitting not a whole lot higher than, than the Temple Mount, looking down upon it. Then on the back side, the eastern side of this mount, are these little towns. Now again, I tell you, we know quite a bit about the town of Bethany. This is where Lazarus and Mary and Martha, one of the most precious families to Jesus Christ in all the Bible. We know that this is where they lived. This almost, one man says, feels like a missionary house for Jesus anytime he makes this trek. This is where he would sleep. As a matter of fact, this is where he would sleep on each night of this Holy Week. He would go over the Mount of Olives, into Jerusalem, and then as night fell, he would go back over the Mount and into Bethany, spending the night with these dear friends. And can you imagine the honor, not only of knowing that Christ Jesus has raised your brother from the dead, but it's in your house that he has come to stay. I've got a little book. I meant to bring it, and I didn't bring it. Um, many of you probably read it when you were a little boy or a little girl. It's called If Jesus Came to My House. You need to go buy it if you haven't. It's an old one. It's If Jesus Came to My House. And all the things I would do if Jesus came to my house, I'd give him the best seat. I'd let him play with my favorite toys. I'd give him the biggest cookie from the batch. All the things we would do if Jesus came to our house. Now, of course, the moral to that story is we're to treat each other that same way. They had Jesus actually come to their house. And it was there in that home that we see the feast and Lazarus is there. And we, we talked about this last week as, as Lazarus is there and he's certainly retelling the story of how he once was dead and now he's alive. And it's at that supper where Mary comes out with a pound of pure nard and she anoints Jesus beforehand for his burial, not knowing fully what she's doing. It's also at that time that we begin to get our first glimpses of the heart of Judas Iscariot. That he was the greedy one, not caring for widows and orphans, not caring about the ministry of Jesus all that much at all, but being a greedy man, being a thief who stole from the coin purse of the group. And so now this morning's text, it's the next day. That was Saturday. Saturday was the feast in Bethany. Now it's the next day. It's Saturday. It's Palm Sunday, the ninth day of Nisan. 
And we read here that Jesus gives two of his disciples very specific instructions. They're to go into the town just across the way. I believe that to be Bethphage. They're to go into Bethphage and he tells them, there you're going to find a colt tied up. Not just any colt, but a colt on which no one has ever sat. And he says, there you're to untie it and to bring it to me. Well, look, someone shows up and starts untying your colt and walking off with it. You're going to have some questions, rightly so. So Jesus, knowing this to be the case, he tells them, this is what you're going to say. When you begin to untie the colt and the owners come running out and ask, what are you doing? Your response is to be, the Lord has need of it. Now, I looked, I looked back and it seems as though we came to this text in Mark's gospel about two years ago. It was May the 2nd, I think, of, of 2021. And we... We wrestled a little bit with what was Jesus' purpose in this? What, what was actually happening here? As I said earlier, this was not Jesus' first trip to Jerusalem. This was not his first trip to Bethany or Bethphage. And so is it possible that beforehand he had gone to these people, that these were some disciples of Jesus Christ? And he says, listen, when Holy Week comes, when Passover week arrives, two of my disciples will come and they will require this cult of you. And when they begin to untie it, you're going to come out and think it's being stolen. And the password is the Lord has need of it. That's, that's absolutely possible. We don't have to have a supernatural answer for what happened here, but it seems more likely to me. Is Jesus Christ the one that was directing all the events? We talked about this. Even as Jesus is bound and led away by the Roman soldiers, we know that Christ Jesus was actually the one directing all these events, that he was really the one that was in charge. So I wonder if perhaps what this, this wasn't just another show of the sovereignty of God in all this having placed that cult there with that family for this very purpose, so that when the word came that the kurios, the Lord, not just master, not just sir, but God has need of it, the people would gladly let go. But either way, they go. They find the colt exactly as they have said. Now, a colt is just an, a young, uncastrated horse or a donkey. We read specifically from Matthew's gospel that this was the, the colt of a donkey, that the mother came with him as well, and Again, we postulated back then, why might this be? I think probably because Jesus wasn't a cowboy and he wasn't looking for a rodeo. Perhaps if the mom was with him, he would be a little bit calmer. But Matthew, speaking to his Jewish audience, he lets us know that this is not just any colt, it's the colt of a donkey. And he tells us that this had taken place to fulfill what had been spoken by the prophet. This is Zechariah the prophet, speaking to the people of Israel as they were going to come back into the promised land after exile. The promise of their coming Messiah, he says this, Zechariah 9, 9. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, Jesus had been extreme, up to this point, Jesus had been extremely adamant that people were not to speak about him as they came to recognize who he was. Every time he would heal someone, every time he would cast out a demon, or even when Peter came to recognize that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the most high God, he would call them to secrecy. Now they didn't do a good job. They couldn't keep a secret like this to themselves, but Jesus would routinely tell them, look, it's not yet time. The time will come. As a matter of fact, it's going to be the time when the religious leaders least likely want it to come. They wanted to kill Jesus any week other than Passover week. There are far too many eyes. There's far too much fervor in the air. They wanted to kill Jesus any time other than this week, and yet they never could. And so he kept the, 
kept a secret to them to himself. He kept a secret amongst his disciples. The purpose being, number one, he would not lay down his life one second sooner than it was time. But in addition to this, because the people didn't have a full understanding of what this meant. They didn't fully recognize what it meant for the king of Israel to come riding in. But here he says, daughter of Zion, this is speaking to Israel, behold, your king is coming to you. A clear fulfillment of prophecy. Now you all know, you can go on the internet and type in how many prophecies did Jesus fulfill, and it's hundreds. Hundreds of prophecies fulfilled by Christ Jesus as he came. And many of them completely outside, from a human perspective, completely outside of his control. Think about being born in Bethlehem. In his humanity, Jesus had no control over this. Think about King Herod's desire to destroy all the children so that his family took him off into Egypt so that it may be said, I call my son out of Egypt. He was an infant in his humanity. He had no control over this. Think about the fact that his bones were not broken. Again, I say in his humanity, he wasn't directing that action. And yet now we see him purposefully fulfilling a prophecy. Knowing what this meant. Knowing that the time had come. This is a clear statement. I am your king. The time had come. And he made the announcement. Now they, they tell us that this was a donkey. This is the cult of a donkey on which no one had ever sat. And that in and of itself was a statement. There was a rule in Israel that no one was ever sit upon the horse or upon the donkey of a king. So this was to be one that had never been sat upon. And you think, well, why a donkey? Why would Jesus, why not a magnificent horse or a, a golden chariot for that matter? Why would Jesus come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey? Well, there's a root found in the Old Testament for this as well. You remember that it's in Genesis 49 where we're told that Judah will be the one, the scepter never departing from between his feet, that he will be the everlasting king of Israel. And it is said there that he himself will come riding on a donkey. When Solomon was anointed king of Israel, he came riding in on his father David's donkey. So again, I say this was a clear statement to all who had eyes to see. To all of this Jewish audience who are here in this place to observe the Passover. This was a clear statement. I'm the king you've been waiting on. I am the Messiah. I am the long-awaited son of David who is coming to reign forever and ever. And the people's response was just right. You listen, in Mark's, Mark's gospel, it says that they spread their cloaks on the road. And they spread many, many leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Now the picture of spreading your cloak out on the road, this is a show of submission. Walk on my back, Jesus. They're laying out the red carpet, but it's a red carpet of their garments. Their outer garments, they're showing, you're not only the king, but we submit to you as king. We honor you as king. We desire for you to rule over us as king. And then there were these leafy branches. John tells us that they were palm leaves, palm branches. That's why we call it Palm Sunday. This too had a clear statement behind it. Palm branches were a bit of a, a sign of natural, uh, national power. It would be a bit like going through a Going to a parade somewhere here in America and everybody's waving the, the stars and stripes. It's a sign of victory and nationalism and, and honor. This goes back to the revolt of the Maccabees. When the people had risen up and chunked the Syrians out of the temple. They had cleansed the temple and chased them out of Jerusalem. So this was a clear sign as its people waved these branches. They were saying, not only is this our coming king, but this is a victorious king. 
This is a conquering king. This is a powerful king. This is a king who is coming to set us free like we had once been free. Verse 38 of what this morning's text says that not only did they know he was the king, not only did they know that he was the king that rode in in victory, but they knew that he had come from God. Verse 38 says that they cried out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Does that ring a bell? I've told you before, I've told some of you before that the time between Advent season and Holy Week seems to fly by. I mean, it feels like we were just here working through Christmas together. So surely when you hear these words, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, your mind goes to the angels and the birth announcement, doesn't it? The angels, they were there with the shepherds saying, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth amongst those with whom he is pleased. That he has come to bring peace on earth because he brings the peace of heaven. These men, they seem to recognize this. They recognize this wasn't just an earthly king. This was the king sent from God. This was the king whom God had promised. Mark 11, we read that they cried out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna in Hebrew is Hoshiana. In Greek, it is translated Hosanna. And in English, it is translated Hosanna. It means save us, please. The crying out, save us, please. And certainly their mind had already moved on to the Passover, Passover meal. It was at that meal, it was at that supper when they would read what's called the Hillel. Psalm 113 through 118. And it's there in Psalm 118 where we read, save us, we pray, O Lord. This is a cry for salvation. The people knew that this wasn't just a victorious earthly king riding in, but this was the king who had been promised and sent by God. This king came, and not only did he come to his people, but he came to save them. And so this is a cry of save us, save us, not completely unlike blind Bartimaeus. Have mercy on me, son of David. All the right words, all the right posture, all the right symbols. As the Jewish king rode into the Jewish town on the most Jewish of holidays. But not everyone was excited. Verse 39 tells us that some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Always the party poopers. Desiring to destroy Jesus. Not wanting to entrust themselves to him as the promised king, the Messiah, the Christ who was to come. So they're there calling Jesus to hush these people. And I, I wonder if that's not the heart of some. Not so much outwardly despising Christ Jesus, but being somewhat embarrassed and off-put. Put off, off-put. Not enjoying the excitement of others. As Christ Jesus comes riding in and the excitement begins to swell, I wonder if there's not some today who they just don't get it. Not only do they not find that excitement swelling up within their own heart, but they despise it in the hearts of others. Calm down. But Jesus tells them, I tell you, if these were silent, these very stones would cry out. I looked, I told you, I looked back at my sermon from May of 2021, and that was the first and I think only time I've ever brought a prop into a sermon. And what I brought to you was a rock from the Mount of Olives. 
And what I said to you then, I guess I'll say to you again this morning, is that rocks don't have baby rocks. How do you get little rocks? Big ones get busted up, I suppose. So I'm left to assume that the rock that I brought home was perhaps one of these rocks that Christ Jesus was speaking about. He said, I don't need the praise of man, for I am God of the universe. The heavens declare the glory of God. If you were to silence these men, if you were to kill every last believer, if the whole of humanity were to be wiped out, all of creation would rise up and worship and praise in honor of my name. You cannot silence the praise. These very rocks would cry out because I'm not just the king of Israel. I'm the king of the universe. So the praise continues, though. It would continue, and Jesus would not stop it. Where elsewhere he was calling people to silence, where elsewhere he was telling people, my time has not yet come. Where elsewhere he was telling people, don't tell people what you have recognized about me. Now he's saying, no, I will not silence this choir. I will not shut down this parade. My praise will be known as I ride into my father's house. Perfect response. You can feel the excitement, can't you? Maybe we need to do next year. Maybe next year we'll do a, what, what do you call it, a, a, a Palm Sunday parade. and The kids can wave the palm branches. I'm sure we can get our hands on some palm branches and, and just replicate the excitement and the joy and the, the anticipation of that day. So you can imagine if I were Christ Jesus, having kept this secret to myself, having condescended from the heights of heaven, living a life of humility and suffering, being rejected by men, knowing the rejection that was on the other side. He knew where he was going. He knew that this was not going to be his coronation. He knew that he was going to undergo death. And it wasn't until the resurrection and the ascension that he would sit down at his father's right hand. He knew all that awaited him. You would think that even in this moment then Jesus would just sit back for a moment and enjoy the praise. Finally, someone recognizing me for who I am. We don't know which portions of this crowd would continue on in praise. We don't know who that was there in that crowd would be amongst the 120 in the upper room and who might be crying out for his crucifixion in the days to come. But wouldn't he just stop and enjoy the sound for a moment? That's not what we find. Verse 41. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. And I can imagine the confusion on the part of his disciples. They had been ready. You know, most surely they had been ready for him to make his identity known. For him to swing his conquering sword and chase the Romans from Israel. And finally the praise was coming. For the first time, as the, as the crowd comes to him, you remember what happened after Jesus fed the 5,000. They come and chase him around the Sea of Galilee. And what does he do? He disperses the crowd by saying some really hard stuff. But now for once, he's allowing the crowds to swell. He's allowing the praise to go up. And he's weeping. Now this is, people that know much more about a Greek than I do say that this idea of weeping is probably a bit light. It's more of a sobbing. The kind of cry where you see a man's shoulders shake up and down. So I can't help but picture maybe Peter, because he's the loud mouth of the bunch. Peter coming up to Jesus and getting close and saying, Jesus, why are you crying? Why are you weeping? Isn't this why you've come to be worshipped? Honored and praised? 
And we know that Jesus wasn't crying for himself. Luke will go on to tell us in Luke chapter 23 as Jesus is headed up to Golgotha. We read that there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Jesus wasn't weeping for himself. He was weeping for another. He was weeping for Jerusalem. Jesus, why are you weeping? Some people had come out from the city, we read. It seems to be a mix amongst the crowd. There were those who had been with Jesus and seen, well, there were some that had been with him in Galilee that came with him, of course. There were some that had been there and seen the miracles that he had worked in raising Lazarus from the dead. Scripture also tells us that there were some that had come out from the city to greet them. I can imagine if there was one there from the city of Jerusalem and they came up and said, Jesus, why are you crying? He would have said, I'm not crying for myself, I'm crying for you. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Would that you, even you of all places, in you is the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices. The people of God flock to this city to honor him as Lord. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city of peace, the city of David. The temple that sits upon a hill. Would that you of all people, wouldn't you have known the things that make for peace? I'm weeping because on this day you don't understand what I've come to bring. You're singing peace in heaven and peace on earth, but you don't know the things that make for peace. And so I'm weeping. I'm sobbing. This surely drives our hearts and our minds back to the story of the exile. You remember another man that was a man of sorrows, the weeping prophet Jeremiah, always preaching to a people that would not hear and would not see and would not respond. And he would cry out to them. He would tell them, listen, destruction is coming because you've dishonored God. Because of your sin, he's going to allow this place to be laid low. And what would they say? No, 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 that could never happen to us because we have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Don't you know we've got the glory of God trapped in the holy of holies? He can't allow this place to be destroyed. Don't you know we're the chosen people of God? We're Israel. To us belong the covenants and the promises and the prophets. He could never allow such a thing to happen. He says, you're so mistaken. Do not listen to those men who preach to you peace, peace, where there is no peace. But see, the problem was they no longer felt any conviction. They no longer felt conviction for their sin. They no longer felt a prick in their conscience from the Holy Spirit calling them to turn and repent and be saved. And so because they didn't feel that conviction any longer, they assumed that they were at peace. Beloved, I submit to you there's no more dangerous place in all the earth than that. To find yourself with the assumption of peace living in the middle of sin. And that's the reality for where these people were. They believed that they were the people at peace with God. They've been looking forward to the day of the Lord. All throughout the Old Testament, you'll see this phrase, the day of the Lord. And it's very clear throughout the Old Testament that the day of the Lord, it's a day in which Christ Jesus, or the, the Messiah, the Christ will come and he will destroy the enemies of God and he will ransom, he will rescue, he will redeem the people of God. 
And now, people have often said that when you're reading prophecy, it can be a bit like looking at a mountain range. I've never seen mountains before until our first time we went out to Glorieta, New Mexico. And as you're going, you look up and it looks like just one really long string of mountains. And you're wondering, how's my car going to get through? There's just mountain there. But as you get closer, what you begin to recognize is that's not a mountain, just a string of mountains. There's great depth between one and the other. One is very near while another is very far off. The closer we get, the more we realize that. That's the way prophecy is. All throughout the Old Testament, God would say, I will do this and I will do this. And the people assume that must be at one time. That's certainly what the people of God assumed. That when the king came, the king would come to bring peace to his people while destroying his enemies. The problem is they didn't recognize that unless this king came and laid down his life, no one would have peace and all would be enemies. They thought that they had peace with God. So they cry out, Jesus, save us. Destroy the enemies of God. They wanted peace. When he says you did not know the things that make for peace, he's not saying you weren't the people who wanted peace. He's saying you thought you already had it. You thought nothing left, that there was nothing left to accomplish. You don't understand that the coming day of the Lord, it would be nothing but destruction unless I first come and lay down my life like this. Unless you place your faith, turn from your sin and repent, trust in me. So Jesus came offering peace to people who thought they already had peace. So they wanted him riding in on a horse, swinging a sword, destroying the enemies. But, but Jesus had been so very clear all throughout his earthly ministry. He kept saying, look, you think that the problem is out there somewhere. You think the problem is the Romans or the Syrians or the Babylonians or the Sumerians. You think all of the problems in life are out there. But what you need to recognize, it's you. You're the problem. Your heart is the problem. And unless I do something to deal with that. Unless I do something to bring peace and reconcile you to the God whose name you claim, there will be no peace. The problem isn't them. The problem is you. This is why the king has come. This is why we should rejoice that he came in gentle and lowly, riding on the colt of a donkey. It's only a man who knows his sin. It's only a man who knows he has no peace that can rejoice in a thing like this. Recognizing that the kind of peace that he comes to offer us, unless you have peace with God, you will never have the peace of God in this world. He says, I've come to offer you peace with God. So that even as the Romans remain, and even as people die, even as you suffer in this life, you'll find an inexplicable peace in your heart. That's the peace I've come to offer. There will come a time when Christ Jesus returns. Fast forward to the book of Revelation. Next time we see him on a horse... It will be a day of rejoicing for few and sorrow for many. So he weeps. He says, I've come to offer you peace with God. It's not what you expected. Therefore, it has been hidden from your eyes. Not the only time Jesus wept like this over the city. He had great affinity. Think of all the, apart from just the spiritual meaning of this city of Jerusalem and the, and the meaning of this temple and all that it pointed to in him. The temple, the high priest, the Lamb of God, all pointing forward and finding its fulfillment in Christ Jesus. But just the human memories, the earthly memories of this place. We read earlier in Luke 13, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets 
and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. How often I would have gathered your children together like a precious mother gathering her hens and her chicks together, but you weren't willing. I came offering peace, but it wasn't the peace that you wanted, so you didn't receive it. You're not willing. He says here, you do not know the things that make for peace. And he says at the end of this text that you did not know the day of your visitation. We, we know that this knowing was a willful not knowing. That Christ Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. It was because they loved the darkness rather than the light. We read in Hosea 4, 6 that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge. It wasn't that they didn't know. They had every possible opportunity to know the peace that God had offered. He had preached it in that place. He says, you didn't know the peace that I've come to offer. You don't know the day of your visitation. Zechariah the priest, when he hears about the, the coming of the Christ, he praises God because he knows that God has visited his people. But these people, they willingly suppress the truth that this king who came, that he offered peace, and that this king who came, he was God himself. And so because of that, this city would be utterly destroyed. He said, because you cling to this place, because God has come to tabernacle with you and let you hold on to this other tabernacle, I will destroy it. Because the Lamb of God has come to lay down his life and you want to continue offering stupid lambs, I will destroy it. Because the great high priest has come not only to lay down his life, but to intercede at the Father's right hand for you, I will do away with all of it. He's, of course, pointing forward to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, a truly horrific event. You can read it in the writings of historians like Josephus, where something like 1.1 million people died. So Jesus is here, and he weeps. Because he didn't come to bring condemnation. That's what we read in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And goes on, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Jesus did not need to come and condemn the world. The world was already condemned. Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy 1.15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. Why? To save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Christ Jesus came not to bring condemnation and not yet for a time of judgment. That day will come. He came to save sinners. He came to offer peace. He came for a time of visitation. God coming to tabernacle with his people and they would not. They willingly suppressed that truth. They rejected their long-awaited promised king. And so he wept. Now, beloved, we don't need to allow Jesus weeping and Jesus' sorrow and Jesus' plea with these people to in any way cause us to doubt his sovereignty and all these things. It does not diminish his control, nor does it diminish their guilt, as I've already said. 
Because this is the same Jesus that said in Matthew eleven twenty five, I thank you, Father, Lord in heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. He says you would not. You did not know the things that make for peace and therefore now they've been hidden from your eyes. He's thanking God in one breath that he has hidden these things from the wise and understanding. And at the same time, he's weeping for the destruction that that means for them. Just following this event, John 12, 39, we read that the people could not believe. And he quotes the prophet Isaiah. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. This in no way diminishes the sovereignty of God. This in no way diminishes the guilt of the people. And yet we see the heart of God. We see his voice crying out in the Old Testament. I do not delight in the destruction of the wicked. We see Jesus crying out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. We see him weeping on this day saying that you would have just known the things that make for peace. We begin to see something of the heart of God. He is not bashful. He is not hesitant. He is not embarrassed. No one is forcing him to uphold his holiness in the destruction of sinners, in the judgment of the wicked, and yet his heart is one of salvation. We see something of this when we read in the, the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the prodigal son. Over and over and over again, what does Jesus say? There is more rejoicing in heaven over the repentance of one sinner than 99 who need not repent. You want to know the heart of God, you need to know that heaven swells with praise. It rejoices at the salvation of one sinner. And this same God says, I do not delight in the destruction of the wicked. That he comes in Christ Jesus, looking over the very city that will reject him after all of his offers of peace, salvation. Those who will flog him and whip him and spit on his face. Pull out his beard, put a crown of thorns upon his head. That yet still, in spite of all this, he stands over them and he weeps. Because the sovereignty of God never causes him to ignore or be unconcerned with the sin and the loss and the sorrow of the damned. Nor should it us. We of all people should be a people who weep over the lost. You want to have a heart like God. You want to reflect the character of Christ, then we weep. We don't chunk our hands up in the air and say, oh, well, God's in control. We weep. So what we're seeing here isn't just the perfect humanity of Christ. It's the heart of God. Same heart that cries out, why must you die? Why must you die? Turn from your evil ways and be saved. You see the complexity of all. I know that we've not solved any problems today. I know I've just presented to you something that, from our human perspective, creates incredible tension without ever being in any way contrary to itself. But I call you to see the complexity of the heart of God. Knowing that in his destruction of the wicked, again, I tell you, he is not bashful he is not hesitant he is not forced to do this but that his wrath is not he does not delight in the destruction of the wicked for the destruction of the wicked's sake he does not delight in the pain of the wicked for the pain of the wicked's sake it's about his holiness it's about something greater it's 
So we see Christ Jesus here weeping. I've got to finish up here. But I point you back to the words of Micah 7. Who is a God like you? You who delight in showing mercy. That at his root, God is a savior. I went through, I don't have time to read them. I'll give them to you later if you come and ask me. But I went through and I just pulled all the passages in scripture where it speaks specifically not to Christ Jesus as Savior, but God our Savior. That he is a God who saves. He is a God who delights in mercy. He is a God who rejoices in the repentance of one sinner and does not delight in the destruction of wicked men. If I ask you today, who could despise a God like this? Who could reject an offer of peace like this? Who could ever doubt a savior like this? Hallelujah. What a savior. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. Father, we know that you are a savior and that you are a holy savior. That you will not leave sin unpunished. That you will not agree with the rebel who counts you as less glorious than your creation. And yet we know, Father, that while you will uphold the glory and holiness of your name, you delight in mercy. That you are a God who saves. And we stand here as a people who have been saved and are being saved. And someday, once and for all, we'll be saved. So we rejoice in you, not just what you have done, but who you are. Again, Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you bless us as we leave this place, having hidden it in our hearts. Father, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.